Hey folks, and welcome to this week's book review on the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Today you're listening to episode 37 of the podcast's second season, and we're currently in the middle of a series of book reviews of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Today marks the halfway point of this series, as we are discussing The Silver Chair, which is the fourth of the seven books. And this also means that the end of season two is steadily approaching. We will be wrapping up the season when we get all the way through the Chronicles of Narnia, so we will review the seventh book, The Last Battle, on December 1st, and that will be our 40th and final episode of this season. After that, I'll be taking a brief break for the holidays, and then I'll be back in January to launch Season 3. Now, I will go ahead and give you a heads up. Next year in the podcast's third season, I will be having to adjust my posting schedule somewhat. I'll still be doing the exact same sort of book discussions I've always done and still on a regular schedule, but instead of coming out every week, the episodes will be every other week. Now, I'm sorry I have to adjust the schedule this way, but it will be for the best in the long run. I have got several different work projects, creative projects, that have been piling up for a long time because I've just not had the time to tackle them. But they're projects I really believe are worth doing, and I believe you guys will be excited about them too when you hear what they are. So I'm backing off just slightly on the frequency of book review episodes so that I can make these other creative projects happen and share them with you all if you're interested. So anyway, all this is just a quick heads up. I will be sharing more details soon about the Season 3 schedule, and also about my plans for the Patreon community during Season 3. So stay tuned for all that info over the next few weeks. So thank you for joining me for today's book review of The Silver Chair, and let's get right to it. So this is the middle book, the fourth of the Seven Chronicles, according to the order of publication, although it was actually the fifth Narnia book that C.S. Lewis wrote. He had already completed The Horse and His Boy when he wrote The Silver Chair, but the order of those two got swapped when the books were published, which I think makes sense. The Silver Chair marks Eustace's return to Narnia after his adventures with his cousins Edmund and Lucy in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, so it makes sense for the Silver Chair to immediately follow the voyage. Whereas The Horse and His Boy is a sort of a standalone story set actually earlier in time in Narnia during the reign of the four Pevensey siblings. And then the sixth published book, The Magician's Nephew, is also set earlier in time, in fact, even before the Pevensey siblings. So I think it's logical to put The Horse and His Boy and The Magician's Nephew together, since they're both slightly out of the timeline of the other five books. Anyway, all that to say, even though Lewis wrote The Horse and His Boy first, The Silver Chair got published before it in 1953, following The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it is amusing because in The Silver Chair, Lewis 
actually makes references to the story of the horse and his boy as a legendary piece of Narnian history that's a tale well worth hearing. So he he sort of sets up his own next book quite neatly. But The Silver Chair is about Eustace, the Pevensey's cousin who was an exasperating person until he encountered Aslan in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and his life began to change drastically for the better after that meeting. And because the Pevensies aren't in this book, The Silver Chair, I think it does have a slightly different feel from the first three chronicles. And I think that works. Um, I love the Pevensey siblings. They're amazing. But it just seems like the timing is right. After three books with them as the heroes, it's right to move forward and give other characters a chance in the limelight. So Eustace, after his transformation in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, makes an admirable hero in The Silver Chair. He's far from perfect. Uh, He can be grumpy at times. He can be moody. He can be stubborn. But he also shows a lot of courage and some good sense. And he is learning to think about people besides himself, which is a huge improvement from the Eustace we first met at the start of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the boy that almost deserved the name Eustace Clarence Scrub. So I enjoy getting to see Eustace continue to grow in the silver chair and learn more about what it means to be a hero and develop some of the better character qualities that he never had before he found his way into Narnia. Now, in the Silver Chair, Eustace returns to Narnia not alone, but bringing with him his friend named Jill, Jill Pole, who is a schoolmate of his at a pretty terrible boarding school in England called Experiment House. They both hate it at school, They're not getting a good education, and there is an intimidating group of bullies that terrorizes kids like Eustace and Jill. So Eustace tells Jill about his adventures in Narnia and what a wonderful place it is, and they decide to, well, pray, essentially. They call out to Aslan and ask him to let them visit Narnia. And long story short, they do get into Narnia. Now, once the children are there, interestingly, Aslan shows up almost immediately. In all the other six chronicles, you get pretty far into the book before Aslan finally enters the story, which works well because in one way or another, I think all the other stories are about characters who are longing for Aslan, seeking him needing him. And while the characters in The Silver Chair need Aslan as much as any of the other Narnian heroes, The Silver Chair is more about remembering and being true to Aslan than about searching for and finding him. So Aslan shows up very quickly in The Silver Chair, and he lays a task on Eustace and Jill. He gives them a quest. According to Narnian time, it has been about 50 years or so since the events of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and King Caspian is now an old man 
and his only son, Prince Rillian, has gone missing several years before, and no one can find him. So Aslan tells Jill and Eustace that they must make it their mission to find Prince Rillian. In fact, Aslan tells the children that he called them out of our world into Narnia for this very purpose. And Jill is confused by this and tries to explain to Aslan that nobody called her and Eustace into Narnia, but that it was they who asked to come to Narnia. And Aslan responds with another one of those simple, profound lines that that has stuck in my brain. He says, You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Food for thought. So Aslan sends Eustace and Jill on this quest to rescue the missing Prince Rillian. But before he sends them, he gives them instructions to guide them on their mission. There are four signs, as he calls them, that the children must follow. And I'm going to go ahead and just read you this short passage from the book because the four signs are central to the whole story. So this is what Aslan tells them. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good help. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, you shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what the writing tells you. Fourth, you will know the lost prince, if you find him, by this, that he will be the first person you have met in your travels who will ask you to do something in my name, in the name of Aslan. So Aslan gives the children these instructions and emphasizes that Jill and Eustace must remember the signs. They must recite them regularly so as not to forget them. They must follow them steadfastly, not distracted by anything else, and they must believe and obey them, even when what the children actually encounter on their quest looks different from what they expect to see. Nothing else matters, Aslan says, but that Jill and Eustace remember and believe the four signs he's giving them. And so he sends them off on their quest. They have a bit of a rough start, although I won't go into all that, but eventually they get introduced to a rather curious individual named Puddleglum. Now, Puddleglum belongs in the Hall of Fame of Narnian characters. He is so unique and magnificent and exactly what this story needs. Now, I know with each of the Chronicles, I rave about at least one of the characters and I talk about how they're so unique and wonderful, but they are. That's that's one of the things that's so impressive about these books. Of course, C.S. Lewis gives us heroes and heroines that delight and inspire us, but he also comes up with all these side characters that are absolutely marvelous, each one in their own different way. Reepicheep, for instance, we talked about last week, and Trumpkin the week before, and now Puddleglum. So Puddleglum is what's called a marshwiggle, 
which is a creature purely of Lewis's own invention, not from classical myth, as many of the Narnian creatures are. So Lewis's marsh wiggles are human-like creatures, but rather tall and lanky and slightly frog-like with webbed fingers and feet. And overall, they tend to be a rather serious race of beings, and Puddleglum is no exception. He sounds like a pessimist when he talks, because he always expects the worst and prepares accordingly. But the thing is, because he expects the worst, things almost always turn out at least a little bit better than he expected. And so the end result is that he is constantly pleasantly surprised. So he's really quite a happy person, even though he doesn't sound like one. Jonathan Rogers, in his book, The World According to Narnia, sums up Puddleglum and describes him as a truly contented person. In fact, Jonathan Rogers' whole analysis of the silver chair is excellent. You should definitely read it. So the children, um, they meet Puddleglum who is assigned to them as a companion and guide, because Aslan, of course, told them to travel north, and Puddleglum is pretty well acquainted with the lands and peoples of the north. So they set out looking for the ruins of an ancient city of giants, as the second of Aslan's four signs instructed them. But winter is coming on, and the journey is over rough terrain through unfriendly territory, so their progress north is slow and arduous. But eventually, on the road, Puddleglum and the children encounter a knight and a lady riding on horses, and the lady tells them of a present-day city of giants, or a castle, anyway, of giants, a place called Harfang. And the lady assures our heroes that these giants are friendly and welcome travelers as guests. So Eustace and Jill are thrilled to hear this, because they are getting sick of sleeping on hard ground and battling the wind and the cold, and they love the idea of sheltering for a while somewhere safe and warm. Puddleglum, on the other hand, is a little more skeptical since he knows a bit more of giants than the children do, but he is willing to hope that these giants will be better than most, and so they keep going north, heading for the castle of Harfang. But what's of greater concern to Puddleglum than the giants of Harfang is the changing attitude of Eustace and Jill, particularly with regard to Aslan's signs. The children are becoming so tired of traveling, and so focused on getting to a place of shelter, that it feels like they've almost forgotten their quest itself. Jill has let slide her habit of repeating the four signs to herself every morning and every night, and neither she nor Eustace talks about Prince Rillian anymore or about Aslan's instructions, because all they can seem to think about is the warm welcome they hope to receive at Harfang good meals, warm beds and baths, and all the other comforts they've been without on their journey so far. And this troubles Puddleglum, this this shift in the children's focus. 
But for the time being, they trek on further north, and they do reach Harfang and do find a friendly welcome there. But then a turning point comes, exactly halfway through the book. First, Jill has a revelation from Aslan, and then all three travelers experience revelation upon revelation, first among the giants of Harfang, and then later in a land they didn't even know existed, as their journey continues and takes them into an underground kingdom, inhabited by gnomes and ruled by a mysterious queen. And I think that'll do for a plot summary of The Silver Chair. Just enough, hopefully, to whet your appetite without ruining any plot twists. And there are some pretty awesome plot twists in this book. It's very well crafted. And one of the keys to the whole story and to its themes is that nothing is as it appears. Puddleglum isn't truly the pessimist he appears to be. The lady and the knight on the road aren't what they appear to be. The giants of Harfang aren't what they appear to be. No part of the quest plays out as Jill and Eustace expect. And perhaps most significantly of all, none of the four signs given by Aslan materialize in a way anyone could have predicted. These signs that sounded pretty straightforward in theory are all difficult to recognize when the children actually meet them in real life. And so this whole journey tests Jill's, Eustace's, and Puddleglum's trust in and obedience to Aslan. Will they follow the signs, even when the signs are so unlike what they had anticipated? Is Aslan's guidance utterly and literally trustworthy, or should our heroes balance the four signs with their own reason and instincts? Jill and Eustace struggle with this, but Puddleglum lands strongly on the side of absolute faith in the literal signs. At one point he says to Jill and Eustace, Aslan's instructions always work. There are no exceptions. So each time they encounter something that technically fits the conditions of one of the four signs, Puddleglum is all in. No matter how unexpectedly the sign appears, it doesn't seem to phase him. If it fits Aslan's instructions, he is not going to question it. He is going to obey. And honestly, that is exactly what makes Puddleglum stand out as a magnificent character. If he is anything, he is committed to Aslan. No matter how strange or unpredictable a situation he might find himself in, no matter the cost of obedience, he obeys. Another memorable and crucial line from the book is when Puddleglum is discussing plans with the children after they have encountered a surprising scenario that does fit one of the four signs. And the children are wavering, but Puddleglum is firm, insisting that they should follow the sign. And he tells them, Aslan didn't tell Pole, that's Jill, of course, Jill Pole is her full name, and she was the one 
to whom Aslan first explained the signs. So Puddleglum says, Aslan didn't tell Pole what would happen. He only told her what to do. And that, to Puddleglum, is the final word. Aslan tells you what to do, you do it. Regardless of everything else. Your course of action is very simple. Obey. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, the last thing I have to talk about briefly is the climactic scene of this book. I'll be careful discussing it because I don't want to spoil it, but the themes that come out of it are so powerful, I cannot be absolutely silent about it. I think The Silver Chair has probably, along with The Last Battle, the final book in the Chronicles, I think these two probably have the best climaxes among the seven books. And funnily enough, these are the two books that have Jill and Eustace as the heroes. I don't know if there's any connection there, but that just occurred to me. Anyway, in The Silver Chair and also in The Last Battle, things look very dark for our heroes near the end of the story. Aslan is nowhere in sight, and the forces of evil are strong. It definitely looks like a losing battle for the good guys. But faith and faithfulness will always win in the end. Even if the world seems to be crumbling around us, even if it literally falls to pieces as we fight, we can have utter confidence that we stand on solid ground if we're standing on the promises of the highest of all high kings. And I think the Silver Chair and the Last Battle are probably the two chronicles that demonstrate this the most powerfully. And in the Silver Chair specifically, the character's faith in Aslan is put to an extreme test. Our heroes face evil enchantments and arguments that do their very best to disprove even the existence of Aslan. The enemy in the silver chair wants to conquer the heroes by completely undermining their faith. And when they've got evil magic on their side, it, it doesn't seem like a fair fight. Puddleglum and Eustace and Jill are subjected to this magical spell that clouds their minds and makes it hard for them to even think clearly, much less argue or fight their enemy. But even at the darkest moment, when they're almost at their wit's end, Puddleglum makes one of the best cases for faith that I think you can make. It's a case for faith that I didn't fully understand as a child, but I still admired Puddleglum's bravery, and his argument resonates with me so deeply now that I have a tiny bit more life experience. In a nutshell, his case for faith is simply this. Suppose that Aslan doesn't exist, that he's purely a myth. Even then, Puddleglum says, it would be infinitely better to believe in him than to believe in nothing. What's the alternative to faith in Aslan? Nothing good. Only a life of monotony and insecurity and despair. So even if Aslan were 
nothing but a figment of the imagination. Puddleglum says he would rather live his life chasing the dream of Aslan than giving in to despair. Now, obviously, there are many cases for faith. There are rational, logical cases, scientific cases, but there's also this kind of experiential case, and it's an important one. We believe in God not just because we're convinced, based on evidence, that he does truly exist, but also because a life lived with and for God is the best life. As Christians, even if we were wrong about the reality of God's existence, we would still be winners, because our faith gives our lives purpose and joy and fulfillment. Now, of course, everything I've said seems so inadequate. I just can't communicate nearly as effectively in an analysis of the silver chair as the book itself does through its story and characters. So if you haven't read the silver chair, just go and read it now. I'm tempted to say it's one of my favorites among the Chronicles of Narnia, although as soon as the words are out of my mouth, I hesitate because it's so impossible to pick favorites among these stories. They're, they're all so dear to me. But perhaps the silver chair, perhaps you could say that it gives us one of the best pictures of our daily Christian walk. We've met with God, our lives have been transformed, and he has given us signs to guide us on our journey through life. But as we travel, it's all too easy to let him and his words fade in our minds as we are distracted by both hardships and comforts. And we must resist that trajectory. We must actively keep ourselves mindful of him and his will, and we must faithfully carry out his instructions, even when our experiences in life surprise or confuse us. He is trustworthy. As Puddleglum says, Aslan's instructions always work. There are no exceptions. So I suppose that's all I will say today about the silver chair. So we've crossed the halfway point now in our book reviews of the Chronicles. Four down, three to go. And I hope you've been enjoying this series as much as I'm enjoying creating it. It's an absolute delight to get to talk about Narnia and Aslan every week. And of course, I've so loved rereading the Chronicles again. They're a true spiritual refreshment. So next week, of course, we will carry on with the fifth published book, The Horse and His Boy, which I'm also tempted to call one of my favorites in the series. Certainly it's one of the most unique, since it's the only book out of the seven that does not feature a hero from our world entering Narnia. There's no traveling between worlds at all. It's sort of a self-contained Narnian legend. Well, a true legend. The true story of a boy called Shasta, who grew up in a kingdom where he doesn't belong, and he's trying to find his place in the Narnian world. Cannot wait to discuss it with you guys. So come back next week for The Horse and His Boy, and thank you so much for listening today. 
As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I'll see you next week. Thank you.